1 Timothy. Chapter 4, and we'll read uh, the first 12 verses. But the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Of course, he's speaking to Timothy here. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for, God, for bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for these things we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourselves an example of those who believe now. Amen. Well, we're looking in First Timothy again, a tremendous letter written to one of Paul's Associates, someone who was, I think Paul was grooming to take over that position that he knew he would soon uh, have to relinquish. Um, I think we know that for sure in Second Timothy he felt like his time was very short. And I think he was probably sensing it even at this point. Anyway, he, he wrote Timothy concerning what he felt like was he was seeing already in, in the church there in Ephesus a falling away from the faith. And uh, I think Paul was clear in his own mind that these things that were cropping up, things like forbidding marriage and, and advocating and abstaining from food, foods were counter to the gospel that he'd been preaching all of his life, or since he'd been converted anyway. And they needed to be uh, stood against. He saw these as doctrines of demons promoted by hypocritical liars and men who had seared consciences. So last time we looked at those first five verses and uh, looked especially at the subject of Gnosticism, which was just beginning to have an effect on the church. It really took hold in the second century, but even at this time there were the beginnings of it. Uh, yeah, the salvation, as far as the Gnostic was concerned, came by way of a secret mystical knowledge that only they had, and especially then they emphasized 
that uh, there's an emphasis on the material creation uh, being evil and contaminating. And so this manifested itself in various forms, but a couple of them that he mentions here, this abstaining from marriage and forbidding certain foods. Uh, so we talked quite a bit last time about this thing of asceticism, severe treatment of the body. I won't go into that again. Just to I just saying those things by way of reminder to set the stage here. But Paul's answer to that whole type of mindset was very simple. He says things these things cannot be evil in themselves because God made them and pronounced them good. He made this creation and pronounced it good. So to say that the material realm is evil obviously goes against just a very basic understanding of what the Bible teaches. Foods and marriage and such things are God's good gifts to humanity to be received with gratitude and shared in by those who believe and know the truth. If you believe and know the truth, you can enjoy those things. If you get off track into a bunch of heresy, you're going to have a bunch of false condemnation over those things. But if you believe and know the truth, you can rejoice in God's goodness. God's good gifts in creation are sanctified by the Word of God. That is, they're set apart for us in His Word. We're told what's right and wrong. Uh, and by prayer, we set them apart to Him as we ask His blessing upon them that they might be used for His glory. So, uh, Paul says in another place, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, as long as you're grateful to God for His goodness and walking in light of His Word and setting things apart to Him, uh, it's for God's glory, whatever you eat or drink. Well, then he goes on to encourage his associate Timothy in verse 6. He says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. So he's saying, as you point out these errors that are cropping up, and as you present the truth, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, helping others and also nourishing yourself. And isn't it true that as we help others and serve others and teach others, we, we do the most good for ourselves? Yeah. I mean, we're, the teacher learns more, and the servant learns more of what it means to walk with God. Uh, than, than the person being served. So he's, he's just telling Timothy, you're going to help others and help yourself uh, by what you're doing here. He brings this out again in verse 16 of, of chapter 4. He says, pay, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So it's a, got a dual application both for personally and for those that hear you. Um, back in verse 6 then, he talks of, about being nourished. Nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. This is where we get our spiritual nourishment. From truth, from God's word as it's applied by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it himself. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is why we need to read the Bible. This is why we need to hear the scriptures read and taught. It's our nourishment. We're especially to be nourished by dwelling on the great truths of Christianity, great, great truths of the faith. This is where our nourishment comes, coming, coming again and again to the gospel, coming again and again to those basic truths that uh, actually they're new every day to us. It, it's the same, you know, you eat something one day and you think, well, that should take care of that. But it doesn't take care of that. A little bit later, you're hungry again. You need to eat again. So nourished, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Now, Paul was telling Timothy he needs to deal with the error there. And the best refutation of error, these doctrines of demons, is sound doctrine. Truth presented not just by our lips, but demonstrated in our lives. He brings that out in verse 12 where he tells Timothy, Show yourself to be an example of those who believe. In other words, you need to preach these things, you need to teach these things, you need to live these things. Show yourself to be an example of those who believe. One of the best ways to silence criticism is through conduct. Not only to present the truth in word, but to demonstrate it in our lives, indeed, demonstrated in our deeds. Paul then goes on in verse 7 to tell Timothy to stay away from worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, I think that's not a very good way of translating what's presented there. If you look at other translations, it sounds pretty derogatory towards old women. Uh, the other translations have it more like most other translations have something like have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales or old wives fables so you have a, that concept uh, that was apparently common back then and is sometimes still referred to today old wives tales has, is kind of synonymous with uh, silly superstitions things that were passed on uh, from one generation to another, but not with, without much foundation in fact or reality. Um, so we're talking about superstitions here and myths. Um, I looked it up on the Internet just to get a little more understanding. Of course, we have a lot of superstitions, and it's amazing how strong they can be. Just as an example, this idea of the number 13. It's incredible how much power that false concept has, that superstition has. Um, let me just read you a few. More than 80% of high-rises lack the 13th floor. They just skip it. Many airports skip the 13th gate. Airplanes have no 13th aisle. Do you ever serve anybody in the 13th aisle, dear? 
hospitals and hotels regularly have no room number 13. In Italy, they omit the number 13 from the national lottery. On the streets in Florence, Italy, the houses between 12 and 14 are addressed 12 and a half. <laughs> so many cities do not have 13th Street or 13th Avenue. So it's incredible, you see, the power of, of superstition. So that's what I think Paul's aiming at here, myths and superstitions and fables. And uh, yeah, old wives... Tales, uh, you know, I suppose that would have, I don't know, I'll probably get in trouble (laughs) on some of these. (laughs) That would include things like predicting the gender of the unborn child by the way the baby is carried in the womb. Uh, Handling toads can give you warts. And, well, that's enough. (laughs) Uh, Of course, what he's talking about here would be more of a religious nature. And uh, just as an example of how that thinking might come into our lives today, let's say that uh, you're going to get on the airplane and you saw that the flight number was 666. Would that bother you? Well, it shouldn't. It's just a number. Well, anyway, the point Paul is making that Tim, was that Timothy should not have anything to do with myths and fables and religious superstitions. He needs to not waste his time on things like that. Instead of dealing with godless myths, he needs to exercise himself with the spiritual disciplines that promote godly living. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And that's mainly what we're going to talk about in the remainder of the time here. The idea of disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness carries the idea of training yourself or exercising yourself in things that produce godly living. Don't spend time on godless myths. Spend time on things that make you more Christ-like. And normally when we think of the spiritual disciplines, we think of things like prayer and Bible reading and worship and fellowship and serving others, those, those type of things. And that's, that's right. That's what we should think of. Uh, those things that God can use to promote godliness in our lives. And God will use it by his grace to promote godliness in our lives. It seems that Paul, as he often did, turned to athletics to illustrate his exhortation to Timothy. The word exercise or discipline here in the Greek is a word, it's a word that we get our word gymnasium from. So you could almost say it this way. Gymnasticize yourself for the purpose of godliness. I think I made that word up, but I think it gets the point across because that's the word he was using here in the Greek. 
gymnasticize yourself for the purpose of godliness. Of course, this does not mean that you go to the Y to get godly. And they didn't have Ys back then. They did have gymnasium situations, which probably would make you less godly if you went to them from some of the things I read about them. But he's using it as an illustration here. He's using athletics and, and the whole thing of uh, exercise to teach us something about the Christian life. It is possible to view the Christian life as a kind of spiritual athletics with godliness as the goal or the target or the finish line, the thing we're trying to attain, godliness, Christ-likeness. We know that God doesn't tell us things simply that we might believe them in our head. His truth is to be worked out in our lives. We should be working out his instructions that we might become more godly. Now, truth is what God uses as the weight we lift in order to build spiritual muscle. We must exercise the truth in our lives just as a runner or a wrestler or a swimmer goes through an intense course of training to get to the Olympics. So there is a spiritual training for the Christian. But our spiritual training has to be done with the right motive, with the right attitude. The Pharisees did most of these spiritual disciplines. Think about that. They read the scriptures, they prayed, they fasted, they thought they were worshiping. Uh, they did those things. So they have to be done with the right motive and the right attitude. So when I, I just want to list some of the attitudes involved in spiritual discipline. First of all, there's dedication. To be a good runner, to be a good swimmer, you can't have ten different hobbies that you have going at the same time and be involved in all kinds of leisure activities. I'm talking about being a good runner or a good swimmer. That person that's striving in those areas is concentrated on this. He's got one main thing, one supreme attitude, and you have to have that in the Christian life too. The Christian life involves striving to please Christ. Now, you might not like that word, but it's in the Bible. Conformity to Christ is our goal. Paul said it this way, One thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, you say, that's Paul. No, that's for, that's for every Christian. Dedication to the cause of Christ. Or more than that, dedication to Christ himself. a desire, a dedication to serve the one who died for you, the one who died for me. So dedication. 
and along with that comes determination. They're very close. Athletes set their face like a flint in order to win the prize. As Christians, we should be earnest about the course before us. We're not to be at ease in Zion, not lackadaisical about the Christian life. We should be determined by the grace of God to make it to the finish line. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. In other words, pursue a vigorous course of training in the things that promote godliness. Pursue a vigorous course of training in the things that promote godliness. Things that promote loving God more and loving others more. In other words, determination, a determination to be pleasing to him. So, dedication, determination, perseverance. Keeping on when the going gets rough. And even when you fall, get up again. And get up again. And get up again. Bumps and bruises are part of the Christian life. I'll take an example from athletics here, since Paul was using athletics. I think of what I've read in the past about a man named Lou Gehrig, who was a famous baseball player. And until recently, he held the record for playing the most consecutive games in Major League Baseball. 2,130 consecutive games. Now think of that, playing that many games in a row without missing one game. It's incredible. And that record's even been broken now. Well, you might say he was blessed with an amazingly healthy body. Actually, he died when he was 37 of what has become known as Lou Gehrig's disease. But what I want to point out was that when, they, when his hands were x-rayed toward the end of his career, doctors found at least 17 broken bones that had healed while he continued to play. Just getting hit on the hands and arms so much, 17 broken bones, but he just kept on. That's how his company could play 2,130 games consecutively. In other words, he persevered through hardships. In the Christian life, the perseverance of the saints is also the preservation of the saints. We persevere because God perseveres with us. We keep on because God keeps on keeping on with us. He keeps us keeping on. He's our keeper, as it says in Psalm 121. I'll just read that really quickly here. Because we've got to keep our emphasis right. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite thee by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. He perseveres with us. Consequently, we persevere, but we must persevere. Must persevere. It's an attitude. And then practice. It takes patient 
practice to learn to be good at a sport. Practicing doing something right over and over again. Not just doing something, but doing something right. Do it the right way. We'd like instant ability and instant maturity in the Christian life. But Christian life isn't that way. There must be patient continuance in doing good. Patient continuance in doing well. We, have to, we need to form good habits of doing right. You know, most of us have a lot of bad habits that we brought in to the Christian life. And we need to reform those things by practicing doing the right thing. And, you know, it won't be automatic and you'll fail in it. But if you practice and practice and practice, patient practice, well, as they say, practice makes perfect. Now, as a Christian, our standing with God is perfect in Christ to begin with. That's the way we start. He was the one who, whose practice was perfect. And we know that our walk in this life is far from perfect. Nevertheless, the right attitude is, Lord, help me not to settle into being an unsanctified saint that is not pursuing holiness. Help me, Lord, not to settle into being an unsanctified saint that is not pursuing the holiness that God has for us this day, this day, right now, this day. What area am I dealing with that, that I can look to God and practice this in, practice holiness in? Patiently practicing the disciplines of the Christian life, Again, things like Bible reading, praying, serving, sharing, fellowship. As we do that, we will advance more and more in godliness, more and more towards Christ, Christ-likeness. Lastly, I would mention self-control. Unless an athlete exercises self-control in things like eating and sleeping and other areas of their life, they'll never be what they could be. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Talking about the, the games, the athletic contests. He says those people exercise self-control. Physical self-control. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, we have a different motive. There must be self-control for the follower of Christ also. We're told in Galatians chapter 5 that part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So ultimately, for the Christian, self-control is not based on human willpower. It's based on the power of God. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. So self-control is actually spirit control, but 
in saying that, we also need to realize we're not passive in this. The Holy Spirit does, doesn't just bypass our, our will and our mind. We're not passive in this. We must make real decisions to trust Christ and to make no provision for the flesh. Those things are real every day. To trust Him in what He says and to make no provision for the flesh. Those things, that's self-control, but it's also the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, you, <clears throat> you might be thinking, some of this seems like you're going against what you presented last time when you condemned asceticism. Uh, that and all the examples I gave of that last time uh, that have plagued Christianity down through the centuries. What, so here's the question. What's the difference between ungodly asceticism and disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? That's, I just want to spend a little time on that. Um, what's the difference between ungodly asceticism and disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness? Well, let me mention a few here. As I mentioned last time, contempt of the physical body is not biblical. Many ascetics had the type of attitude that for them any enjoyment of the body was considered wrong. They would try to avoid any type of physical pleasure and practice severe self-discipline. And that's, this is not what we're talking about, contempt for the body. That's not godly discipline because God has given many things related to our body to be enjoyed. Also, purposely seeking out, seeking out discomfort or pain in order to make yourself more holy is not godly discipline. Purposely seeking out or inflicting upon yourself uh, pain or discomfort. Uh, the example I gave last time of, of that people got into that whipping themselves in order to try to be more godly or more spiritual. Uh, whipping yourself never made one person more holy. An even greater error of the ascetic is to think that by practicing some type of self-denial, you can earn God's favor. There's nothing like that in the Bible. Such wrong thinking is a total denial of the gracious gospel of God, saved by grace, grace alone, period. And you can whip yourself till you bleed to death and you won't be any more holy. Paul told the Colossians, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Our salvation is by grace, and we pursue uh, holiness out of gratitude for the grace of God. For the ascetic, many, they had many rules that deal primarily with externals. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Instead of the real internal heart issues, that's where the issue really is. Our sin problems do not stem from our physical body. It's our hearts that are the real problem. This is what Jesus said, For from within, 
out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts and fornications and thefts. And he goes right through the list of things. It's from within. There's where the issue, there's where the battles are fought. It's those things that defile a man, not the outward. Rules concerning external things cannot give a person a new heart. Only the new birth can make a person obedient from the heart. This is what we're talking about, you see. Obedience from the heart is what makes a person Christ-like. Obeying legalistic rules may appear to keep a person from the sins of the flesh, but they are actually the other side of the same coin. That's because they don't deal with the root issue, which is fleshly pride. I'm trying to make the distinction between ungodly asceticism and disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. Much of what goes under the name of religious asceticism is actually actually the flesh trying to deal with fleshly indulgence in a way that ends up glorifying the flesh. I have some examples, but I don't think I'll read them here. Uh, I think the point is should be per- fairly clear. Such things as ungod- uh, un- these ungodly supposed disciplines do not glorify God. They may impress the ungodly, but they won't impress God. And they won't glorify God. It's just the flesh glorifying in the suppression of the flesh. Instead of fighting the flesh, you actually feed the flesh. I will say that the church in America desperately needs to discipline itself for the purpose of godliness. But it also needs to avoid asceticism like the plague. Godly Discipline sees the body as good but needing the control of God's spirit. Asceticism sees the body as evil to be harshly suppressed and deprived of pleasure through human willpower. Totally different. So, to bring this little section here to a close, only the Holy Spirit living in God's people can make them holy and produce the fruit of his spirit, which ultimately is Christ's likeness. This is what we're aiming at, Christ's likeness. It takes the Holy Spirit to do that. We must realize that godliness is achieved through our identification and union with Christ, and that's the only way it's achieved, through our identification by faith and our union with Christ, not through any form of asceticism. We must be intentional, pressing on to know the Lord, We must trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. It has to be gospel-centered. All of our our disciplines for the purpose of godliness must be gospel-centered. They must be Christ-centered. Let me just briefly then say a word about uh, verses 8 and 9. Paul does acknowledge that bodily discipline that is, some forms of physical exercise and exertion, may have a very limited physical benefit for the short time of our life here on earth. See how he says it? 
for bodily discipline is for is only for little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So he says there's a little profit there. You can maybe keep yourself a little healthier by some regular exercise. That's uh, I think should be common sense. But he, but actually, I don't think Paul is interested in affirming the value of physical exercise in this portion of Scripture. The real point he is is making here is that since bodily training is of such slight value, we ought to devote ourselves to the discipline that produces godliness. It's not that that's nothing, but compared to what we're talking about here, it becomes very insignificant. It's the only form of discipline that glorifies God. It's a discipline that brings forth godliness, that is, Christ-like conduct, which is profitable not only for this life, but also for the life to come. So in closing, let me just say it this way. Life in its fullest and truest sense, both now and eternally, is only for those who will discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. This wasn't just for Timothy. This is for all of us. We should be exercising ourselves in these things, things that are directing us toward true godliness, true Christ-likeness. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that the disciplines of the Christian life which bring forth godliness have great value not only for this life but the life to come. True life is fellowship with God, fellowship with Christ, knowing Him, being in communion with Him day by day. Such a life is ours and will be increasingly ours as we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So again, I would say, of course, these things were directed towards Timothy, but they apply to everyone who desires to live the Christian life. We must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Well, I'll stop there, and I thought we could sing that song, Take Time to Be Holy. Appropriate here in relationship to these godly disciplines. We said one of the things that one of the main things we need to do is cultivate the love relationship. We can do all these other things unless we actually do that, they will not accomplish the purpose for which they were intended, which is the love relationship. Now, we need to cultivate the love relationship in our marriage and in our family and in our church. But he was primarily talking about our love relationship with the Lord. And I, I was just thinking that this, this church at Ephesus that these things were written to, if we see 
in the book of Revelation what what's spoken about them. This would be a few years later after after Paul wrote these things to Timothy, all these exhortations. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. They, they got some of this stuff right, you see, that Paul was saying, telling Timothy, don't get, get that f- bad doctrine, those f- myths and fables out of there. You cannot endure evil men. You, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. And you have perseverance. So twice he mentioned perseverance here. They were persevering. And have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. In other words, they didn't cultivate the love relationship. In the midst of doing all the other, getting their doctrine straight, getting rid of the false teachers, that type, type of thing, you can, do, you can do that and still there's a big area that uh, we need to remember. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, remember therefore, from, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I will come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So in all of what I said there uh, this morning, don't forget that part. Cultivate the love relationship. Well, let's be dismissed.